Uh, hi, Luke. Have you on the show? It's absolute pleasure to be here. I appreciate you uh, getting in touch and asking me to come be a part of your amazing community. So uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, people who don't know who I am. Okay, who am I? Well, I'm someone that helps other people become the best version of themselves to give them tools to overcome obstacles, adapt to setbacks and see opportunities in their life that they may never saw before. Um, and I do that through speaking, uh, coaching, workshops, and also showing people that we are capable of so much more through doing big ultra endurance challenges. So that's mm. like that's like where I go to, to school. I talk about that's where I get my education, doing these big challenges and putting myself in these situations where my back's up against the wall physically and mentally, and I've got to figure out, I've got to use a tool to help me take that next step. And then I extract all this knowledge, this information of how to overcome obstacles and adapt to setbacks and see opportunities that I didn't before and then teach them to people on an individual all the way up to you know, big companies all around the world. Got it. So uh, before we talk about running and endurance sports and all those different things, uh, I know you have quite an interesting background in football and um, suffered from depression and so, so many things. So uh, let's talk about that before we uh, jump right into the, the world of sports, so to speak. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in Australia and I always wanted to be a professional soccer player. And I left home at 16 at a very young age to pursue um, to pursue this dream, to pursue mm. the, the goal of playing professional soccer. I grew up in a small little country town and I went to play for a professional club um, with my family's blessing, which was great. <laughs> At 21, I left Australia to once again develop as a, as a footballer, as a soccer player. And um, I went over to America. I played in Belgium. I played in the UK. Uh, I wasn't the best player. I didn't play in any first divisions. I mm. didn't set the world on fire, but for most of my 20s, I didn't You have were to... good enough, right? Probably. I... <laughs> or better I... than most people. I made, I made money to pay rent, feed myself, and have a good time. Mm. That was it. So as a 20, as in my 20s, that was like, cool. a pretty good life, yeah. And when did you recognize that you're such a good player? So uh, I think a lot of kids who, who are playing soccer, they want to become pro, but um, most don't make it. So when did you realize you had a re realistic shot at it? It wasn't till I was about 16. So mm -hmm. I'm talking about the age of seven or eight, I wanted to be a professional player. Uh, <laughs> that was it. And I wasn't very good. I... I didn't even get picked for my local representative team up until I was 14. So, but the thing was, and this is where a lot of my coaching uh, comes from. It's as a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old kids, I did the work. I knew I wasn't the best, but I wanted to mm -hmm. be the best. So I put the work in every day and I was very lucky that I didn't have pushy parents. My parents just simply said to me, if you want to do this, you have to do the work. We'll support you, but you have to do the work. So mm. there's one of the stories I love to share, and I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought it was normal, was as a 14-year-old kid, I asked my parents, say, look, 
I want to become a professional. At 14, I was, still wasn't very good. I still wasn't being <laughs> the local team. You know, all my friends were getting the cool track suits. I wasn't even getting picked. But I asked him, I said, can you drop me to the gym before school? So we're talking like 6, 6.30 in the morning. And I would, go to, I would go to the gym. I would um, like do plyometrics, jumping on boxes, do footwork, run on the treadmill, swimming the pool. I wasn't lifting weights because I was only 14. But I was training. Did, did you get the workout routine from the internet or was it just something you made up? So <laughs> No, this, this is just something that I made up that I had been training to do anyway. So I yeah. literally had no idea. But it, <laughs> it wasn't what I was doing. It was how I was doing it. I was getting up in the morning early, mm. going in, putting the work in for an hour or two. My grandmother would then pick me up. I'd go to her house. I'd have breakfast. And then I would go to school as a 14-year-old kid. Yeah, not, crazy. Not as part of a team, just for myself. And then it wasn't until I actually sort of – I had a bit of a growth spurt. And I, mm. and I think everything came together. All the hard work I'd been putting in. Um, up until, you know, from 13, 14, 15, I had a bit of a growth spurt between 14 and 15. And then at 16, all of a sudden, everyone looked around and went, wow, like, where did this Luke guy come from? Now he's been looked at by the national team. Now he's been looked at by professional clubs. 12 months ago, no one knew who I was. And all of a sudden, Crazy. I was there. And they thought I was this overnight success. But in reality, I've been working my backside off for, you know, four or five years to get to where I was. And, and where did, did you get the inspiration from? Like, I think it's so amazing hearing somebody like, yeah, at 14 years old, being so dedicated, it's so amazing. So uh, I think mo most 14-year-olds are just, are just playing, like, video games. And <laughs> nothing wrong with that, but, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it was definitely my, my parents. My parents encouraged me to be the best that I could be. Didn't mm. push me, but encouraged me. And they, they said, like, we'll support you. We're not going to do it for you, but we'll support you. So having two loving, um, supporting parents was, was a big thing. And watching my my mum and dad both played sport. They didn't play at an elite level, but they both played. They went to training every week. They went to the games. So we were very much around sport our entire lives. And we knew the people who kept winning every year, the people that kept winning the trophies, the people that kept scoring the goals were the ones that were the fastest, the best, and worked the hardest. Hmm. So I just saw that and went, if I want to be the best, if I want to be this professional soccer player, this footballer, then I have to put the work in. So it was all around me growing up, and I just started to apply it. And after a while, I started to see results. Very cool, very cool. So uh, what happened then? So after I left Australia and went to America and then went to Belgium and then came over here to the UK where I am today, um, I started to struggle with some injuries, and mm. I too many to, to, to point out. Um, at, a, at the worst state, it was, I had three surgeries in the space of 11 months, all for different injuries. So I had a, you know, I had a very good couple of surgeons who uh, were on first name basis. And uh, I was always on the operating table, off the operating table, physio, things like this. And then my, my mental health started to really plummet. And I started mm. to have these dark thoughts. And I was really... How old were you back then? Uh, at this stage, it started when I was about 24, 25, um, and I really didn't know what to do. 
and I was mm. confused. I didn't quite understand it. And I was this guy, this, this young um, footballer who was just loving life. And, you know, I'm very charismatic, I like to think, and, you know, a bit of fun. But deep down, I had this feeling that it was this almost like this, this, this energy within me that was evaporating all the other po- all the positive energy. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. I was very confused. And I let it go for years and years and years. And it was, um, I retired from football. At how, so how, how, how did it look like, the depression phase? Like, yeah. Um, did so, you have no motivation to play ba- uh, football and um, no motivation to go out and hang out with friends? So, yeah, how, how did it look like? Yeah, so it was, it was very much I wanted to stay by myself. So there was days mm-hmm. where I, I was injured, so I couldn't train. So I didn't mm-hmm. have to go anywhere. And there was days where I didn't get out of bed until 2 o'clock. And there were times <laughs> when, when I wanted to, I'm saying to myself, okay, you're going to get up and you're going to go have breakfast. Ready, three, two, one, get out of bed. <laughs> and I just couldn't do it. And it was pulling the, the covers mm-hmm. over my head, just mm-hmm. not wanting to, to live. I didn't, at that time, I didn't abuse any substances. Mm-hmm. I wasn't taking drugs or I wasn't drinking or I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't gambling like a lot of athletes get into. I just was feeling really lousy. I had no energy, really lethargic, and I didn't want to be around anyone. So... Mm-hmm. When I had to be around people, I would put on this bright and bubbly face and act really well, mm-hmm. pretend everything was fine, and then as soon as I could go into my bedroom and just hide, then I would. Yeah, and and uh, what was what was the worst time during this phase? Like um, any particular moments that come to mind right now, and um, or yeah, a particular 100%. story? Yeah, hundred percent. So obviously, I've done a lot of. Uh, personal work, a lot of self-development, a lot of, a lot of growth work on mm. myself, and I'm now able to talk about these things because I suffered in silence for a very long time. <laughs> I the, think most of the Exactly. The first time that I wanted to take my life was probably the worst it got when I was still playing football. And I say the first time, and I'm sure we'll get into the second time later. I simply didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to live like this. Uh, it, it sucked and I felt like I had no control. I didn't have enough uh, strength to ask for mm. help. I was ashamed. I was confused. So I took myself off um, in the middle of the night and stood on top of a bridge and was just like, okay, as soon as you take, as soon as you take that step off, the pain's going to go away. And I stood there for what could have been probably – Anywhere between 30 minutes and three hours. I don't know. It definitely wasn't less than 30 minutes, but it wasn't any more than three hours, I'm guessing, because it was still dark when I stepped back. So I actually didn't step off. And mm. I stood there just thinking about, I don't want the, I want this pain to go away. I don't want to feel this way anymore. And I was just like, all right, step off, step off. And I just couldn't bring myself to it. So then eventually I stepped back down and I walked back to my house and it was just this whole negative um, conversation that was going on in my head over and over again for the next couple of years. And and did your friends know about it, your family, anybody? No, hmm. not at all. The, only, the first time I started to talk about um, this instant and also my mental health was not until uh, must be six or seven years after that happened. Hmm. 
crazy. And I think um, that's one of the biggest issues with depression that, um, for instance, I was just thinking about that in one dark time in my life, um, most people don't like to talk about it. And me, for, me, for instance, I didn't like to talk about it. And if I did, nobody took me seriously because I'm this happy-go-lucky guy and always smiling and always having a good time. And um, people don't like to think that you might be depressed if you are, like you've said, uh, this charismatic, charismatic happy-go-lucky person. And... Um, yeah, that I got told, like, when I started to talk about my mental health years later, mm. I don't understand. You're the most least depressive person I know. Yeah. <laughs> and I smile. This this person is a very open-minded person and a very good friend. And mm. I just gave him this small little smile and said, um, Trav, I was a very good actor. And that was it. Simple as that. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. <laughs> and it's um and I don't have it for for everybody who's listening to this right now. I don't personally have any solution to this. Like what would you tell them? I don't I don't know what to say. So <laughs> it's 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 tough, people. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's there's there's no one fix. I can only say what eventually helped me and that was putting my hand up and say I need help. Um, mm. You know, I was I was confused, feeling like this. Um, I didn't know what to do. I was ashamed, you know. Yeah. And, and for me, when I reached out to people, I was lucky enough that good um, people knew something was going on. When this was like six, seven years later, when I first, uh, well, just before I started to talk about it, because it got mm. pretty bad. Um, people realized I wasn't in a great place. There were certain things in my life that were happening that we can get into later if you like. And I really just um, knew that if I wanted to live my life and not merely survive, hmm. I, need, I needed help. So I think for people, the solution, I don't think there is one solution. But for me, what the advice that I always give is to know that, one, you're not alone, even if you hmm. feel alone. And two, so powerful. Speaking, so powerful. speaking to someone, whether you know them or not. So I mm. took a long time before I went to therapy, but when I went to therapy, it was great because I could walk into that office to that person who didn't know me, and I, my my name could have been Bob, and I could have been a builder, and that was it. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> I, I could have made it up if I wanted to. So, yeah. That's what I tell people. Use a, use a fake name. Tell a different story, but just mm. talk to someone about how you feel because I think a lot of people are ashamed to talk to people who, 100%. who do know them. So just talk to a stranger. And if mm. they're a stranger that actually deals with people with mental health, great. If you don't want to tell your real story, make one up. You know, Just actually you talking about what you're going through is going to help you. Yeah, and I think that's great advice because um, I think really it's the, one of the biggest problems is that people are ashamed and they don't like to talk about it. And I was just thinking about when I said to my family that I'm depressed, they're like, Hardy, come on, man, you're not depressed. <laughs> and everybody was denying that. Mm. And I think it's also a big problem that when somebody is so honest and vulnerable and really tells you that they are like feeling like shit, they can't get out of bed, they're feeling terrible all the time, like you better take them seriously in my opinion. Like they, they are not kidding. That's, that's, uh, 
they're not joking. So uh, no, and and you said uh, a word there that I love to talk about, and you said like being vulnerable. And yeah. I think if someone is being vulnerable with the truth, and that's something that I do love to talk about all the time, is is make sure that every single day you are vulnerable with the truth. Because mm. if you're consistent with being open and honest, maybe initially people won't take you serious. But if you're consistently saying, look, I'm not in a good way, and yeah. the next day I'm not in a good way, and the next day, or can work the opposite way. People say to me, how are you? And a lot of the times I, I say absolutely amazing or I'm yeah. amazing. <laughs> like, I, I know that response, even though, yeah, you're feeling completely differently. But No, no, no. But what I'm saying, if you do feel that way, yeah. sa- say it. Say, <laughs> say you feel amazing. To, to get in the amazing. habit. To get in the habit of mm-hmm. being vulnerable with the truth. And the truth being if you feel amazing or the truth mean, being that you feel absolutely <laughs> rubbish, if you can do that on both ends of the scales – then that's very liberating because you are being vulnerable. You're sharing with how you feel. What a lot of times people do is they're like this spectrum. Instead of it being like this big, it's only this big. And they say, well, when I'm really great over here, I just say to people that I'm okay and I'm good. When I'm really, really crappy over here, I say, oh, I'm not too bad. So they Mm -hmm. keep this scale here. But when we do feel amazing, we should talk about it. We should say, yeah, I feel great. I'm absolutely amazing. Totally and if people say, why? And you say, well, I'm healthy. I have a loving family. I love my job. I love my family. I'm my friends. Why aren't I amazing? I am. But the flip side is if you are really down, if you are really low, tell people that. Don't sort mm. of drag that up on the scale just to hear and just say, oh, I'm doing okay. Say, no, I feel crap. I need help. I want to talk to someone. So you are being vulnerable with that truth. And I feel like if you can do that on either Mm. end of the scale, people are going to listen to you because they know that you are being truthful and you are being vulnerable. And when people understand that you're being Mm. vulnerable, they want to help you or they want to be part of your life. And I think it's good advice because um, putting a mask on and telling everybody how great you are, even though you are not feeling great, I think um, it's really dishonest and you're doing your, uh, yourself like a disservice and everybody else probably too. So, uh, yeah. And I think most people try to be perfect and put just like, oh, yeah, I'm so happy all the time. Life is going great. And when they're at home, they're worrying about so, so many different things in their life. And, um, yeah. No, I, I agree. And that's why I, I say on both ends of the scale, if you feel rough or you feel bad, tell people if people ask you. Be even if it's the person who's checking your groceries out at the supermarket. <laughs> you know, like so many times my wife has looked at me, not so much now, but years ago, just to say, What why are you telling the, the guy at the checkout like that you've had a really bad day because, you know, the car broke down and you lost a new client, you lost a client, and did this happen, this happens. Like, I don't need to know that. So they asked how I was, so I told them. <laughs> yeah, why not? But I, I don't do it because I don't always feel like talking to somebody. But, um, yeah, I totally get it. So uh, what would you tell um, somebody who is now listening to this right now and um, who is feeling depressed and they think, it isn't getting better. Like there's no way um, 
they tried so so many things they listened to all the podcasts they they've listened to to uh, to all the youtube videos and watched them and so on and so forth so what would you tell them because i think a lot of people think they can't get better so yeah 100 percent. look i can only talk from my experience um i'm not a therapist or a counselor or anything like that yeah, but it, me, it me is neither <laughs> it is i definitely is talking to someone as i said like talking to someone who you don't know um, mm. can be helpful even if you have a random online friend who you've never met just talk to someone tell someone how you're feeling hey my get in touch with me write me a direct message online i don't mind if someone's listening to this, <laughs> you're such a great guy by the way <laughs> <laughs> someone's listening to this luke at luketaberski.com send me an email and say luke <laughs> i feel rubbish how how can you help me and i'll do what i can you know what i mean so I, that's so great the whole, the whole point to this is just talk about how you're feeling um even even to yourself say it out loud mm -hmm. because what i what i feel and what i believe is when we all have these negative thoughts in our heads, right? We all say detrimental and, and they have these detrimental conversations between our ears. We all, we all do it. We all say things about ourselves that we truly don't believe, but they're inside our head. And I call these ne negative mind gremlins. So these negative mind gremlins get in our head and they talk to us and say, you're not worth it. You're, you're rubbish. You're crap. You can't do this. Um, you know, I'm not going to let you get out of bed. Uh, you're not worth living everyone hates you at work and you don't want to live anymore. There's all these, these mm. chatter. And what I tell people is say, say these things out loud, right? So obviously I wouldn't do it in the middle of a grocery store. but it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they think you're crazy and will lock you up probably. So. <laughs> but in the comfort of your own home, find a place for five minutes and say the things out loud. Actually mm. say, Luke, you are you're not a good speaker Luke. you can't help other people Luke. you are really low you are depressed you don't want to live anymore no one likes you say them out loud what i have found with myself and with people who i work with is when you get them out of your mouth and you actually mm. hear them through your own ears is they sound differently and it gives you a chance when you purge them out of your mouth to actually hear them and realize i don't believe that mm. i what I'm saying is not true about myself. So instead of keeping them locked in your head, say them out loud so you purge them out, get them out of you and see if that makes a difference. And that's a technique that I've used many times on myself and one that many of my clients have used as well. So negative mind gremlins, get them out. Hmm. And I think um, it, it's also important to understand that eventually you will get to your baseline quote unquote happiness level. So for instance, um, when I had like such a high in my life and everything really was going great, like after a certain period of time frame, it was just like, yeah, every day, everything's normal. And when, when, when something really, really bad happened, like, Eventually, after a couple of months, um, I was uh, back to my baseline level of happiness. And uh, I think it's also important to understand that, that those things, I think for, for most people, I, I can really only speak for myself, but um, I think um, most people get back to their quote unquote baseline ha level happiness uh, after a certain time period. Well, if they're, if they're const constantly trying to do something about like yeah. how, they're, how they're feeling, then yeah, they, they're going to 
get back to that level of um, contentment, you know, whether mm, it's happiness that's or not. That's a good not, word, yeah, but it's contentment. Being, but it's being able to be, be content where you are right now, you know, because mm, let's be honest, a lot of people will say, well, I can always have more. I can always be happier. I can always, you know, smile. <laughs> I think everybody can. <laughs> of course we can. But it's yeah. being able to realize that it's, it's on a scale, you know. There's not like mm. this one feeling. It's totally. on a scale of, actually, you know what? I'm content with my life right now. I, I appreciate everything I've got. I've got gratitude for my entire life. I'm good. You know, I am I am yeah. in place. Like I can be happier, but right now I've got gratitude. I'm very I'm healthy. I've got good family, friends, support network, community. I like what I do. I'm good to go. You know, mm. and then, and that sort of feeling of you know contentment called advice is a way to sort of okay, if I'm in this range, then I'm good. When I start getting closer to actually I'm not I'm having negative self talk and my self-worth is dropping and I don't have much confidence, then I know that I'm getting to the end of this level of contentment. So I need to try and work to try and get back to more in that middle, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I think um, most people don't actually want happiness. They just want freedom from their misery. Like I think um, happiness means so, so many different things today like what is really happiness so um i think most people want freedom from their problems freedom from their misery freedom from feeling bad about themselves and yeah yeah no i don't disagree you know my happy place at a lot of times is when i'm about four hours into a six hour run but i tell you what, <laughs> a lot of people don't think that's happy at all so uh, you know it depends on who you are and what your definition is of happy <laughs> so um how did you eventually get out of that so uh yeah well, what are the steps you, you've taken so you you get it you have gotten a therapist right so what happened then so yeah, i went to therapy and lied yeah. through lied through my teeth about what i was going through and wasn't open wasn't honest what were you telling uh to him so oh just like I was basically downplaying what, <laughs> what I was going through. I was like, you know, I have a few days where I feel a little bit upset and a little bit depressed. And oh, man. You know, I didn't tell them that I was struggling to get out of bed sometimes, standing on Shit. top of bridges and things like this. But for me, that was a massive step to go and talk about it. So, as I said, and and by the way, by the way, I have to mention that, like me being like quote unquote a media person. Um, I have so much respect for you being so honest about that. So really, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm like honest and I a lot of respect. Yeah. So I, you know, I could tell this is all, you know, I had this very simple trajectory where I went to therapy and I opened up and I cried and I poured my heart out and it definitely helped me and got me out of this depression. But the first time I went to therapy um, and the first therapist I saw I, like, I'll be honest, she didn't stand a chance. She could be the, the best therapist in the world, but she was <laughs> never going to crack me open because <laughs> because I didn't want to be cracked open. I just did it as a way as, like, I've got to do something because deep down I knew I didn't want to kill myself, let's be honest, but I was standing on top of a bridge thinking yeah. about it, and I was one step away, and I thought, oh, this is not cool. After a period of time, I found the internal strength, and I thought, I've just got to talk to someone. And I was ashamed, even though I didn't tell anyone I was going to therapy. And this woman, you know, she had my real name and my real details. But 
you know, I was ashamed to be opening up. So I thought, actually, no, I'm going to open up on a scale of like one out of 10 rather than what I needed to be doing 10 out of 10 yeah. and was just like, you know, some days, safe, yeah. yeah, some days, some days I, I feel flat and I feel depressed and it takes mm. me half an hour to get out of bed instead of like two minutes. And she's like, okay, so how do you feel? And it's like, oh, well, you know, I feel a bit, bit low and I don't have as much energy, but maybe that's because, you know, I was giving excuses as to why I didn't have energy and things like that. And, um, you know, I just had surgery and I know when I get fit from injury that I'm going to feel better. And, you know, so I, I just thought I'd come and have a little chat with you. Like um, whether she could see through it or not, I don't know. But I saw her for probably about two or th- about probably three months, actually. And and, and, and saw- they were like lying all the time, basically, and I, downplaying I, everything. Yeah. And- <laughs> Shit, I think the man. only time I was honest was when she asked me what my name was, and I you know, <laughs> my name was Luke, and that was it. So, um, but after three months, I was like, "Oh, thanks very much. It definitely helped. I feel such a better mood, and whatever." And anyway, walked, walked, got home, and 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 yeah. by the way, sorry to interrupt again, but um, did your family or anybody, like anybody, know about like you standing on top of the bridge, thinking about nobody? Okay. No one, no one knew. No brother, sister, no, what I have, have you. I have a sister. For girlfriend. Yeah. No one had a girlfriend at the time. Um, no one, no one knew. No one knew. I kept it a secret. So I kept it a secret from I was living with a couple of friends. Okay. Mm. So this is this is how much of a secret I kept it. I was living, I was living with a couple of friends in this house in London. All right. And I was when I was injured. I used to train other athletes, I used to train other footballers and, and people to for fitness and, and speed session things like this. So I'd go with crutches and hobble and arm in a sling when I had shoulder surgery and all this crazy stuff. And I would say to them in the mornings before they went to work at like you know, eight o'clock before they go and do their nine o'clock start work. I'd say, "Oh, all right, guys, see you all later." And my bedroom was right at the front of the house. Okay. So I'd say, bye, guys, see you later. Go to the front door, open it, close it, tiptoe back into my bedroom, quickly close the door really quietly, and then go back into bed and wait <laughs> until I heard all of them leave, and then I would get up and just do nothing. Because oh, man. <laughs> I was staying in bed all day, and I was ashamed for them to know what I was doing. I wanted to make totally. sure that they thought I was just living my normal life. But I was lying to them, and the, flip, and the other thing I would do is when they would get home and I would say, oh, they're all home now. I have to make an appearance for like an hour. So I'd go out and call <laughs> and, and they would say, oh, have you, have you not left the house all day? Like I didn't mm. hear you get up in the morning, your door was closed. And I was like, oh, no, I had a really early meeting or I had a really early client or I went out for a walk. I couldn't sleep. I went out for a walk at like quarter to six before you all got up and I didn't get home until 10. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> I wish it's in bed, you know. But, so I lied to people who were oh, living to do that. So it wasn't in a good. I wasn't in a good place. It wasn't mm. healthy, um, and I was still in my mid twenties battling with this and battling with trying to get back to playing football as well. Yeah, and I was just thinking about, um, for instance, like I'm, I'm my my younger brother and my my younger brother and I we are like very 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 close, and um, I tell him like everything. And I think it's such an advantage if you have somebody you have such a close relationship with, and you can tell them 
anything and everything. And um, yeah, like you being at such a disadvantage, like telling you, you had nobody to talk to basically. So uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was hard. Like I would speak to my parents on the other side of the world and I think they knew something was going on, but they mm. also knew me that, I'm not one person that you try and push information out of and try and drag it out of them. You can only say, I'm here to talk whenever you want. Mm. And I would say, I'm good. I'm totally fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. And my sister lived, you know, only an hour and a half away from me. And I would talk to her occasionally. Occasionally, I'd go down and see her and put on a happy face for a few a few days and lie through my teeth to my sister, who I'm you know, very close with. And that was it. My girlfriend, you know, lied to her and, you know, that that's just, that's just what, that was almost like every day I just knew whenever I was around someone I had to put on this mask and this happy face and just pretend to be the normal Luke that people knew. Mm. And I think you probably hated it, playing the role of being, like, happy all the time. and It was just tiring. Yeah. That was, yeah. That was the biggest thing. It was just exhausting, really. Yeah, and I think it's always, if you're displaying somebody or something you are not, it's really tiring and exhausting, and it isn't fun at all. Like, yeah, you're doing yourself a huge disservice, so. I agree. So um, you went to therapy for three months, and um, then what happened? So a couple of years went by, and I was on and off again playing football, getting some uh, smaller deals, you know, played for a, a few games here and there. And uh, and then really sort of I was at a point where I kept getting injured again and I no club wanted to sign me because I would train there for like two or three weeks and then I'd break down again and I'd get injured. Mm. And then I was 28. It was 2011. And I was running in the local park doing some training myself and I tore another muscle. And it was almost like, it's, it's, it's crazy. It was, it was like the, the clouds parted, the sun came through, this big moment, and I just went, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was a, I was in a happy place and I was, mm. really, I was really content and I had no regrets. The whole time, the previous 12 to 18 months, I had my family, who have always been my number one supporters, my sister, cool. my girlfriend, my friends, all said, Luke, maybe your body's trying to tell you something. You know, maybe your body's trying to say, look, I'm mm. not good enough to play elite level football anymore. And I was like 26, 27. I'm like, I'm still young. I've still got a couple of years. I still want to try and push. Mm. At 28, I tore another muscle and I just thought, that's it. What happened exactly? I just tore a calf muscle, nothing major. Um, mm. But it was like the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, because I had so many other injuries, um, tearing muscles and things, t tendons and ligaments and broken. Yeah. Stuff like well, that. I think football is known for that. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, it's, it's a very demanding sport. At a competitive level, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, I retired and I hobbled home. Still battling privately, still had the same girlfriend, you know, we were together for many years and walked home and I was actually for the first time I felt some relief that I was like, oh, I'm content, I have relief, I'm, I'm happy, I have no regrets now that I've retired, 
Okay, so no major depression phase whatsoever. Like you're feeling like a bit sad, but it wasn't like a major. Okay. <laughs> no, no, but the, but this is the thing. I didn't sort of drop into this major dip of depression because I was already in this this state of depression. <laughs> Shit. So I go home. So this is this is a crazy part, and this is where yeah. my, my career, my life, um takes a massive turn i hobble home i lay on the bed i ice my calf i text my girlfriend i text my physio who i've been seeing you know five six years at the time i said mm. i'm tired i'm done i'll talk to you all later and i'm laying on my bedroom floor i throw my phone on the other side of the bed i'm just laying there icing my calf laptop on my chest and i'm thinking now what and i thought if i don't have a goal if i don't have something that i'm trying to work towards my depression is going to get really bad and mm. this is not going to be good so as a footballer we don't like running long distances right we run maybe 5k in pre-season maybe six seven k at most one in that moment i didn't realize it but i was pissed off that i retired and that i was injured again i had a chip on my shoulder where i felt like i didn't achieve my true potential as a footballer mm. and i thought if i'm not a footballer what am i if i'm not a footballer who am i so mm. i had this loss of identity and in that moment now we're talking the same day i retired that i'm still injured okay got it i remember my friends who were running marathons in sydney Mm -hmm. because I'm obviously from Australia, my friends told me about this race. Now, this race is called the toughest foot race on earth, and, mm -hmm. and it's a 255-kilometer running race through the Sahara Desert. Seven days, the equivalent of six marathons, you carry everything in your backpack for the entire week, and you run from through the desert. And I remember these guys telling me about it. I didn't think it was real. I thought they were stupid and making it up. But in that moment, <laughs> me being lost, me wanting to run away from my life because I knew people will say to me, now what are you going to do? Mm. I Googled this race. I found it. It was in six months. I called them up. I paid a deposit. I paid my sign-up fee, and I hung the phone up, and I went, holy crap, I'm running through the Sahara Desert in six months. <laughs> amazing amazing i really love that so uh yeah so could you prepare for that because you were injured at the time and i needed i needed about a month to let my injured calf heal so i had mm. five five months to go from this broken down football player to an ultra marathon runner i worked with my physio who knew my body better than i did um and i just started running and running and running And in this moment, because everyone sort of asks me, now what are you going to do that you're not a footballer? Mm. My answer was, well, I'm doing this race. I'm running across the Sahara Desert. Like, I have to focus the next five months on this. Mm. So it was almost like a magic trick where I didn't have to face up to reality of now what am I going to do that I'm not a soccer player. And I didn't have to answer anyone's questions when they said, what are you going to do for a living now? Mm. I'm running through the desert. And what happened over the next five months, I thought, hang on, I'm enjoying running. I'm not being injured. I'm in a slightly better mental state. I'm going to do this for a living. 
I'm going to be an endurance <laughs> adventurer. And my whole idea was I'm going to do big challenges all around the world. I'm going to write magazine articles about the places I go to and the challenges I do. I'm going to speak on stages about my big adventures. <laughs> I'm going to have documentaries made about these challenges. I'm going to write books about them. And, and I'm going to coach other people to help them achieve their goals. This mm -hmm. 2011, as like being an injured, broken down soccer player and then doing this one race, I have this new goal in life. I had no background in any of this. My background's in exercise science. My background's about the body, not writing, not speaking, not um, you know, any sort of TV or media. And I just thought, right, this is what I'm doing. And I started, so amazing. People, I started telling people, this is my new life. So amazing because I think that society wants to put us in a certain role and you should do this, you should be that. And I, I personally hate the word should, but um, yeah, and I think it's so amazing to see somebody like um getting out of that. And um, yeah, well, yeah. on the surface, yeah, it looks amazing, it's inspirational, it's motivational, yeah. <laughs> all that cool stuff, yeah, all the good things, yeah, 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 yeah. but in reality. <laughs> This was me running away from life. This was me having that chip on my shoulder. This mm. was me having a loss of identity and just trying to find it. Now, what happened? Unpack that for us, yeah. Yeah, so I can unpack it now because I learned more about it uh, over the about five years after it happened. So, But it sounds is, like a good story to me. <laughs> yeah, so, 2000, so we'll quickly go through some of my big adventures and then we'll get to a place of how I was able to unpack it and how I was able to now know that I had a chip on my shoulder and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So 2012, I ran through the Sahara Desert. Um, I did a bunch of kayaking expeditions as well. I did started doing more ultra marathons, so running longer than a marathon, 100 Ks, mm. 100 miles, um, 50 miles, 60 Ks, 80 Ks, stuff like that. Started to cycle as well, so I cycled 412 kilometers nonstop from my house in London down to the beach to learn how to surf the following day. Um, I did a double Ironman triathlon. It took me 36 nonstop hours, um, so it was very hilly. It was in North Wales, so I started doing these extreme challenges, right? Mm. Um, all around the world, I went to Spain. I was in Nepal. I went out there for six weeks, lived high up in the rural mountains where no Westerners had ever been before. And then trekked up to base camp in Mount Everest and did the world's highest ultra marathon where I ran back down Mount Everest. Um, what? <laughs> crazy, yeah. man. It's crazy. So yeah. I, it's, these are the type of things that I did. And then I, crazy. I, I came up with my big thing that I was working towards was mm. the ultimate triathlon, which was mm. a swim, cycle, and run covering 2,000 kilometers in 12 days from Morocco to Monaco. So mm -hmm. I would swim the Gibraltar Strait between Spain and Morocco and then cycle the entire southeast coast of Spain and then run from the Spanish-French border to Monaco all in 12 days, and it's about 2,000 kilometers. Now, I, I did this in 2015, had a documentary made about it as well, which is cool, The Ultimate Triathlon. It's on Amazon Prime if you want to go and check that out. So... Fast forward from 2011, 2012, I did the desert thing. 2012, 13, 14, and 15, I did about 10, 11 big challenges globally all around the world. Mm. 
um, climbed a mountain in New Zealand and ran through a tropical <laughs> forest in China with no food, water, or money. And I <laughs> what? <laughs> I had a plane to catch. So it was insane, like absolutely ridiculous. All this uh, but you, you sound like Superman here. <laughs> I was I was fueled with fear because I didn't want to stop and face up to the fact that, I, like, I was still battling with my mental health here. I was still battling with my depression. Okay. My long, my long-term girlfriend, girlfriend and I split up. I didn't know why she split up with me. Um, sure. So I had a bit of a breakdown after that. I then turned to binge eating to, you know, to take it to another level of comfort. So I was, you know, eating tubs of ice cream. I was eating loaves of bread. I was eating big bags of nuts in the middle of the night. I then st battled with insomnia sleeping five to six hours a week um, a week while still a week <laughs> yeah i was still trying how is that possible uh, i don't know i was training 20 <laughs> i don't know <laughs> hours, sleeping, cycling and running while at the same time you know training other clients um and then preparing for this ultimate triathlon getting funding organizing logistics and uh, getting brands to sponsor it doing my training all the rest of it so at this time, I was just so mental. Like I would, I'd try and go to bed at say 10, 11 o'clock. I couldn't sleep. It would get to two in the morning. I'd been restless in bed. I'd get up and I would go for a five-hour run from two o'clock in the morning till seven. I would come back, have breakfast, and then get on my laptop, email brands, call people, do a talk. So I was now speaking on stage about all my big adventures that I was doing, um, and life seemed really amazing and really awesome on the outside. But my mental health was declining. I was now binge eating. I was like from the outside in. And your, 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 your schedule doesn't sound healthy to me, like waking up in the middle of the night and running for five hours. It's like. No, it's not, a, not, not healthy at all. <laughs> If I stopped doing all this stuff, that meant that I had to think. And if I had to think, that meant mm -hmm. negative mind gremlins in my head started to get volume and they started to be, become louder. Mm -hmm. and, also, mm -hmm. and also, the thing was, people, I say now that I was addicted By to... By the way, this is such a great conversation. I really <laughs> enjoy it, really. It's a great episode, I can tell already. So Cool. So, <laughs> at the time... I thought, I'm being really healthy, I'm training really hard, I'm doing all these big adventures, I'm doing all this swimming, cycling, running, gym work, yoga, all this stuff. But really now in hindsight, as we start to get to the point of where I was able to unpack life, my, my addiction, I had an addiction. My addiction was endurance sports, the amount that I was training, what I was doing. You know, going out for a five-hour run, whether it's two in the morning or two in the afternoon, and doing that three or four times a week, is not healthy if, <laughs> if at the same time you're cycling 10 to 12 hours a week of cycling and swimming for six or eight hours and doing about four hours of gym session. <laughs> like, that's not healthy. So I was addicted to endurance sports, and that was what I tell people. That was my self-harm. Mm. So I didn't cut myself. I didn't take drugs. I didn't do anything like that. I was addicted to the feeling of doing these endurance sports. It's where I felt truly alive. But also, it was, way, it was a way of harming myself, self-harming. Mm. Because 
I felt so low. I had no confidence about myself. When I felt really crappy because I couldn't sleep or when I felt really negative towards myself, I was like, fine, I'm going to go out and run. I'm going to run mm. three or four hours. I'm going to run as fast as I can. And if I see a hill, I'm going to run up and down at 20 times and then just keep running. And I would just punish myself for feeling depressed. I would punish myself for eating a tub of ice cream in the middle of the night and then a loaf of bread. So then I was like, wow, like I'm, I'm going to put on weight if I keep eating like this. So I would not eat for 24 or 36 hours, do four or six hours of training, so my weight would stay the same. Man, this is so crazy. So, but you can see this was me in, in still being depressed. This was yeah, me, totally. This is me leaning on binge eating to make me feel mm. good. And as soon as I ate it, I felt crap. So then it got to 2015. So 2015 was the year of the ultimate triathlon, my 2,000-kilometer in 12-day swim, cycle, and run from Morocco to Monaco. Mm -hmm. 2015 was the year my life changed in so many ways. First, at the beginning of the year, I met a girl who now is my wife, who <laughs> is, uh, is just amazing, Vanda, and 2015, I started to open up that I had depression. 2015, I went. How come? How come? Unpacked it for us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I went back to therapy because I was just, I realized that I was exhausted. I realized that my life was out of control. I realized that I was being detrimental to my long-term health. Now, you got to remember, like, at the time, I was a health coach. I've been in the health <laughs> industry for nearly yeah. years, okay? I've been an elite athlete my entire life, and I was helping other runners and people in the gym getting fit and healthy. So mm. I'm eating ice cream in the middle of the night and at the same time going, you know, eat real food, don't eat anything protein. <laughs> if you want to have some ice cream, have a little scoop one night. <laughs> that's great. You know, two hours later, I've just ate three tubs of Ben and Jerry's and feel horrible and got out. I love hours. Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> yeah, but So I, I realized that the, all this detrimental behavior, the, the insomnia, the binge eating, mm. you know, I, I found myself back on top of a bridge again. You know, for the second time. The second time. Second time. Even though you were so successful and, yeah, having a documentary about your adventures, like doing all those amazing and cool things and probably getting a ton of compliments and praise. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, people but, thought I was living the most amazing life. Yeah. Cool things. But once <laughs> again, at the end of 2014, I found myself standing on top of another bridge. I asked myself the same questions. Um, I think after I stepped back down, I went and, you know, bought some more ice cream or some chocolate or whatever and just gorged on that again. And then so I met I met a girl who made me feel really comfortable about myself for the first time after my relationship that broke up two years earlier. I went back to therapy. And, and did you tell her all those things and where you all? No, 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 no. Not all. <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you imagine? I'm Luke. I have depression. I binge eat. I stand on top of bridges. Do you want to go out for coffee? yeah let's do it <laughs> yeah okay makes sense totally. so I, I, opened <laughs> I, I opened up to her five percent five percent 
probably <laughs> after about six months. Um, mm. But, but more, more than with the first therapist, or <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so okay. I started to be honest with the with my second therapist. I started to be open with with them, mm. and from pretty much from the get go, because basically I was coming up to this ultimate triathlon from Morocco to Monaco. And I felt all this pressure because I had sponsors and I had brands and I still hadn't had enough funding. I was still trying to figure out how I was going to get this funding. So I went in there and just said, look, I'm doing this challenge in like nine months. Uh, I had this problem, this problem, this problem. How do I fix it? And mm. he was just like, I don't know. How do you think we should fix it? And I'm like, I'm paying <laughs> you to help me, dude. Come on now, help me out. And you know, he he was cool. He was he was cool. He he played the game along with me and and let me sort of rattle off like what I needed and you know quick fix and all the rest of it. And then he started to poke and prod and and I was like, yeah, you know, like oh, I've stood on tops of bridges before and just like in conversation, just saying that really like casually. So then occasionally he would like come back around and make me think about it, make me think about. Mm. How- felt and what i thought you're doing stuff that therapists do and he he was just really really cool and let me be the egotistical athlete that i was and uh, but made me think about things and i am a bit of a deep thinker so he was really good for me and then my girlfriend could you give us like an example like how, how did the conversation look like like yeah so so one of the conversations i think i can remember he was he was saying um so I was saying, like, the ultimate triathlon, this big thing, right, this big, big thing mm. is what I've been working for for the last four years, uh, five years, sorry, and it's going to be big, but I'm feeling all this pressure. And he said, well, think of it like you're on a street, okay? You're on a street, and you think that the street is going to end when you when you get to the end of the street, mm-hmm. okay? And I was like, well, yeah, like the, tra- the ultimate triathlon's finished and it's going to end. And he's like, you're thinking about that, it's going to be finished. It's going to be complete. But what if you get to the end of the street and it's actually an intersection that has six, eight, ten, n plus one uh, roads to go down? Mm-hmm. So when you get to the end of what you think is this amazing big thing that you're doing, it's not the end. It's the beginning of the next part of your journey. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get there, now this is the kicker. He said, you can do whatever you want. You've focused for five years getting yourself ready for this ultimate triathlon. After that, you choose. You choose what direction you want to go in. So if you don't want to not want to do sport anymore, you go down this one. If you want to do challenge, you go down. So whatever it is. And the really cool thing was he explained it to me with using my ultimate triathlon because I put so much pressure on myself for this, and this is the thing that I talked about all the time. He used this as an example about going down this road where you think it's going to end or you think the road's never going to end. They said, what if you actually then create this intersection where mm. you, you choose to go in any direction? And he said, now, can you bring that back to your mental health? And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? We're talking about the other <laughs> But the really cool thing was, and to give people an example, he said, when – when you feel like that you want to binge on some food or when you feel like you want to go out for that run and you know you shouldn't, mm. this is the road that you're on and you've come to an intersection. 
Now, you choose what direction, i.e. what action you want to take. You have control. It's not your body, okay? Mm. Your body doesn't go walk over here and grab something. You have to tell it to. Your mind mm. tells it to. So you choose. You have control. You can, you can control the things that your body's going to do and your mind can think. So he used the ultimate traffic as an example of going down this intersection and, and going down this road. When you get to the intersection, when I finish, you can do whatever you want. But then he mm. brought it back in terms of like my mental health and said, when you're going to do a detrimental behavior, understand that you're in control. Whether you can control it or not is beside the point. But just acknowledging that I am in control. Powerful. I'm, I don't have to go to the supermarket and buy ice cream and bread and lollies and, and cake and stuff. I don't have to. I'm not doing that by like, you know, on, on a robot mode. I actually choose to do that. So just mm. making that choice means that I know I'm in control, whether it's detrimental behavior or positive behavior. So that was one of the things that I definitely took away. Mm. So um, with him, you were like very honest, very vulnerable, but you still played the cool guy, basically. Uh, in everyday life, yeah, no one really knew about my mental health up until probably about a month or two after therapy when I opened up to my parents, I opened up to my sister. Why all- did you do that? Uh, you must have like a, a particular reason probably. Yeah, I was tired. I was tired mm. of carrying this burden that I'd been suffering for at this stage now about um, seven or eight years. I hadn't spoken about it to anyone in about seven or eight years. And I'm very close with my family and I felt comfortable with my my girlfriend at the time, um, who's obviously now my wife. Um, So I felt comfortable with her. So I felt like that I wanted to remove some of this burden. And also I was developing myself and I was developing understanding because because I was actually open and honest and vulnerable in therapy. So Mm. I was gaining some tools and doing some work on myself Mm. so I felt a little bit of confidence to tell my parents who loved me and just told me that they were here for me and my mum even said do you want me to fly she lives in Australia I'm in London she said do you want me to fly over for a couple of weeks and I said no mum there's nothing that you can do all I need to know is that you love and support me. She said, of course. And I said, well, that's all you can do. And that just makes me feel so good inside and also just being able to open up and talk to them. Same with with my sister who lives an hour and a half away. And then I started to open up about um, just battling with depression. Didn't talk about binge eating, didn't talk about the suicide um, standing on tops of bridges, didn't open up that far. But I I just said I was battling with, with depression. And that happened for 2015. I went out to do the ultimate triathlon. I finished a 2,000-kilometer in 12-day swim, cycle, and run from Morocco to Monaco. And then, and then, this is it. And then I had an overdose. I overdosed on endurance sports. Remember I said I was addicted to endurance sports? Mm. The ultimate triathlon was my overdose. It, it saved and created my life, all right? And I say this because... I got injured, I tore a quadricep, I tore a hamstring muscle, but also everything that I've just been telling you about with all these five and six hours a week of sleep, these 20 to 25 hours of, of training. the long How long did you do that, like sleeping so little? and it, 
uh, for five or six hours a week probably was for about six months. Um, six months. I would say I had clinical insomnia for two years. Hmm. But uh, but you know, so for five for probably five or six months it was five to six hours a week. But most of the time I'd probably I'd say I'd sleep fifteen hours a week. You know, anywhere between some nights I wouldn't go to bed. But then some nights I would get four or five hours sleep, other nights two or three, um, things like this. Um, but then in 2016, when I got back from the Ultimate Triathlon, mm. my all of this combined, my health plummeted. I um, didn't do any exercise for 18 months because I couldn't. I was completely mm. exhausted. I went to have I, – I, I kept waking up with headaches and – they wouldn't go away until lunchtime. So I went to see a neurologist and said, look, what's going on? So I had all these brain scans and all the rest of it. And he said, basically, the electric current in a part of your brain is flickering. It's the current's not going through smoothly. So we need to reset it. So I had some medication for about three months to reset some electric signals in my brain and my endocrine system. So my hormonal system was... Uh, um, shutting down so to speak i had a couple of hormones that weren't secreting so 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 were those like the symptoms of like the chronic sleep deprivation or was it like some underlying issue or no it was it was everything sleep mm. deprivation um addicted to endurance sports overtraining mm. overliving undersleeping eating mm. crap food being depressed being stressed man this is such a combo here <laughs> oh crazy this, this is everything this was my yeah. life so then my my human growth hormone so my dhea mm. was called which is a precursor to testosterone pretty important for men uh was basically zero so zero i wasn't secreting it was like 0.0001 when it's supposed to be like 4.0 or something like that um <laughs> uh, so I was basically not there, and that's why I was exhausted. So I went on all these natural supplements, and I had a really good doctor who was an ex-professional triathlete, and she helped me through it. And I had all these supplements and didn't do anything. I did all these recovery techniques. In those 18 months, okay, mm -hmm. I'm able to sit here today, speak to you today, and be able to unpack those past five years, because of those 18 months when I couldn't exercise, I had a choice. I could continue to lie to myself and lie to the world and lie to the fact that I'm okay, I'm fine, and I've got this handled, or mm. I could understand why I was living that way for the past five years. And that's what I did. I spent 18 months to unpack. I stayed in therapist for about six months. Um, and with the same person and then I said look you've given me so many tools thank you very much I want to go and work on them now hmm. and that's what I did I used the tools from therapy I used what my, kind of tools uh, well, things things like he um, self-love meditation hmm. uh, which I've, I've been meditating since I was about uh, 16 but I didn't know it at the time and um, I just thought it was relaxation but it was literally what people are taught on how to meditate today uh, so meditation, <laughs> self-love, uh, journaling, mm. uh, gratitude, uh, you know, having honest conversations. So you're sitting down with my, my wife when I don't feel great and just be open because I feel safe. I feel comfort, um, comfort being with her and just be open and let her 
know-how and feeling. So all these type of tools, I started to do that, reflecting, understanding on, on what I was going through to extract knowledge and and also using all these techniques that I have been teaching when I speak on stage and also uh, that where I've been able to extract them is from my endurance sports. So the endurance sports were causing me to be in this state, but they were always also teaching me because when you're running through the middle of the Sahara Desert and you've got blisters all over your feet, one, one of your toes is being degloved and the skin's hanging off, it's 52 degrees and you don't really have any food to eat and you've still got 12 kilometres to run up and down big soft sand dunes, mm. you have to have some mental tools that's going to give you some resilience and that's going to help you push forward and give you some mental strength. So I used the tools that I've been using as a professional athlete and to help me get me through these big adventures, but also at the same time to understand what I was going through in that time as well on a personal level. So, so when was the first time where you really openly tell some, uh, told somebody that um, you, you were about to jump off the bridge? Because I think this is like, this must be so hard to tell somebody. Like, for instance, I was never at this point in, in my life personally, but um, like being like very, very depressed and feeling very, very bad. But um, being at this point, I think it's like quite, quite another level. And I think it's so hard to be open about that. For instance, because I'm even about my depression, I'm, it's so hard for me about that and you um being so honest and open about that like speak about the first time you you, you shared your story like on stage or in person and yeah it's really interesting question i i haven't been asked that question in that way before mm. um now the first time i ever spoke about uh standing on tops of bridges mm. was how quite funny was in my book a little plug here okay <laughs> i didn't speak about cool that. cover by the way yeah can you can you hold it up, up again okay we will get a screenshot here <laughs> okay got it all right so um the first time i ever spoke about my binge eating and standing on tops of bridges uh, mm. was actually in my book Okay, uh, a very open and honest uh, autobiography. Um, so you've, you've been given the short version today, the long version is in the book. Sure. I, I didn't speak about that to my parents. I didn't speak about that to my wife. Mm. I didn't speak about it to my sister. Not even to your wife. And you were married already at this uh, point? Or? We got married. Uh, yes, we were married. We weren't married when I wrote the book, but we were married when the book was published. So it was mm -hmm. in the whole time that we knew we were going to be together, you know, okay. basically all the stuff. So we were committed. Um, I hadn't, that was sort of like the last piece of the puzzle. I kept mm. that to myself because I was really ashamed about the binge yeah. and the depression and, and the, the, the binge eating and the suicide standing on tops of bridges. So when a friend of mine said, are you going to write a book about the ultimate triathlon? I think you should. And I said, actually, I've already been, over the last three or four years, been writing about my life through my journals, and I started to then push it together into, like, a book. <clears throat> she mm. said, uh, I said, I'm going to send you some stuff. And she said, oh, I'll edit it for you and give you some some pointers. And I was like, great. She was a close friend. I knew her and her husband very well. And I said, Jane, 
<laughs> I'm going to send you something and it's going to blow your mind. She's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Because she knows I'm a really confident person. I said, no, not that I'm an amazing writer, but the content is going to blow your mind. Just so you know, I've not spoken about the stuff that you're going to learn with anyone. So at the time, I was speaking openly on stage about my depression and about my mental health and about my insomnia, but not my binge eating or standing on tops of bridges. I sent her the, but, but I think this was also quite a step, wasn't it? Like, 100%. speaking about that on stage, man, I wouldn't do that. So, <laughs> you yeah. have my, my respect, at least. I've spoken yeah. on stages all around the world from mm. 20, 30 people. I think the biggest stage I was, was about 7,000. And I spoke about <laughs> spoke about my depression and, and insomnia and stuff like that. So I sent this this trans this, this manuscript that I'd wrote to to my friend um, just after the ultimate triathlon, and she read it and she just like she was in Australia at the time. She text messaged me and she just said, "Holy crap, are you okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, like this has been going on for years. I've been dealing with this." And she just said, "I didn't know." And I'm like, "Jane, <laughs> no one knows about my binge eating and uh, the extent of my depression." and standing on tops of bridges, I want to put it in the book. And she was just like, wow, okay. So I didn't tell mm. anyone. When I finished writing the, the first draft and I then sent the first draft, a copy of like, I got it printed and bound, that so was like a big book. I sent it to my sister. I gave it to my, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, she mm. was still girlfriend at the time. And I sent it to my mum and dad. I sent an individual copy and I just said, read this. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to learn new things, but just know that I'm okay. By the way, it must be such a crazy feeling if you know if you've known somebody for several years and you you have this certain kind of image about them, and you're reading this for the first time. I think this must be like such a crazy moment. So, so it was a really interesting reaction. My parents thought that they failed me as parents which I just said, you're making it about them. It's not You're making it about yourself. It's not about you. It's about mm. me and my story. And you were the most amazing parents. My sister was angry at me because we're very close and because she was she was angry at me because she I didn't reach out for her for help and I'm mm. just like, I couldn't. My wife was like, okay, no worries. Let's, I'm glad that you're honest and you're feeling good. Let's just move forward. You know, this is cool. Really? Like, okay. This, this is great. Like you're opening up and yeah. So that was really supportive. And my, my sister got over herself and stopped being angry. And I think, I don't think she understands why I couldn't tell her, hmm. but she appreciates that I'm in a better place now. My parents have realized that um, it was a journey that I'm on and just, they just realized that I'm, that I'm a lot more happier now. So the the first time I actually spoke about it was well the first time I shared it was in my first draft to my my wife my my sister and my mum and dad um, and then obviously with my friend who helped edit the book but then when all my friends bought the book and when I had a book launch uh, in central London with about uh, I think about ninety people. Um, and the book was for sale there, and it went on sale globally on Kindle and paperback on Amazon. Uh, and then, you know, we had hundreds of copies sold at the book launch. 
I was waiting and I was waiting and I was waiting for people to text me to people right on social media, just like, mm. oh my goodness. Mm. And I did. My close friends were just like, <laughs> what the hell? Why did you say something? And I'm just like, I couldn't. It was just where I was at. And, mm. and then now, obviously, I, whenever I speak on stage, if it's for the for that audience, if it will, if it's the right audience, to talk about my mental health because I talk about performance in a corporate setting, a performance as an athlete, but also I, you know, I talk about my mental health, and then I talk about my journey, my story as well. So I have all these different um, directions that my talks go in. Hmm. But if I can get the message across and say, hey, like mental health has been a big part of the last ten years of my life. And you might think that my life is awesome, that I travel around the world to give workshops, to do talks, to coach people. I have athletes all around the world. I have clients all around the world. I do these big challenges still. Um, you know, my life still looks amazing, but it wasn't always this way. And just because my life looks amazing on the outside doesn't mean my life on the inside is amazing. And people can relate to me because totally. I, I'm being vulnerable. Okay, my vulnerable hmm. is really open and it's extreme because of the binge eating, because of the depression, because of the standing on tops of bridges. But also, I've learned so much of going through those experiences. Now that I sh when I share them to people, they can relate to it in their own way, from their own stories, in their own lives. Yeah, and I, I totally think um, people, relate to you way 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 more easily when when you are open about your story and share your story and i think sure there are people that think oh man this is too negative this is too this and that and yeah i would say just fuck them so <laughs> but but i can totally relate to that and i think um people really want to have a connection with somebody like there's so so many experts on social media and instagram and youtube and all those podcast platforms and i think it, that um if you're just giving like advice all the time i think it's so boring oh dull and you are like one out of one million so uh Yeah, I think like getting your message across and helping people with your coaching and stuff like that. I think being vulnerable is definitely uh, the the step in the right direction, so to speak. Yeah, and all I do is teach people what life has taught me. You know, I've mm. I've I've performed at the highest level. You know, whether it's sports or in my own mental health, um, and I've been able to translate all the lessons that I've learned in life and teach others what life has taught me, but they're able to then translate it into all industries. So, mm. you know, for instance, this morning I was teaching um, a group of 25 property investors on mindset. So I, I wrote a five-week course for them and I was doing a the fifth week of that for property investors. I don't own any property, okay? <laughs> But I, but it's not about knowing how to buy a house. It's about preparing them mentally to buying a house, to buying another house, to mm. buying five, ten houses. So I'm giving them the mental tools that I use to help me overcome obstacles, adapt to setbacks, and see opportunities that I've learned from my own personal life, that I've learned from being an elite um, footballer, and also from my ultra endurance challenges. And I, whether it's a property investor a bank, uh, you know, middle management at a bank or a tech, in a tech industry startup or other athletes, 
or whoever, entrepreneurs, it, it doesn't matter. I can translate mm. these tools that, that I use in my own everyday life, no matter what the industry, to help people be the best version of themselves in that day. And if we can be the best version of ourselves in a, in a day, then it gives us a chance to do it the next day. And if we can mm. connect one, two, or three days where we're constantly growing, then we're going to achieve great things in life. Um, before we talk about that, um, could you please share with us, like, when was the first time where you shared, um, like, jumping off of, uh, or thinking about jumping off um, the bridge uh, on stage? So, uh, yeah, on stage, uh, well, obviously. Because I think this, this must be so, so difficult. Like, it, it wasn't actually, because you got to remember, you don't just write a book and then the next month it's published. So I mm. finished writing my book in uh, the start of 2017. Um, yeah, start of 2017, I finished, wrote the last word. And then obviously it was getting edited and I was rereading it and going back and forth. So I finished actually pen on paper, so to speak, the start of 2017. Mm -hmm. Well, I had then 11 months to know what was coming because mm -hmm. it wasn't published until the November. And that's when I had the book launch. So I had 11 months of knowing that it's going to be out in the public. Mm -hmm. People are going to know. So I had 11 months to sort of deal with it. And actually, I was fine because I had, when I initially told my parents and my sister and my, and my wife, I'd made peace with it because I said to myself, I didn't have to put it in the book. You know, I mm. could have just not told anyone. But when I said to myself, in this book, I want to be completely open and brutally honest and share my true story, not just 90% of it. I thought, I, I, and I mean, I'm brutally honest in the book. I talk about my, um, my relationship, my ex-relationship. I talk about the things that I could have done better and, and how I did things that maybe hurt her and, and could have caused it. Like I was brutally honest. So mm. when I thought that I'm going to put it in the book, I started to process that. And I just thought, actually, you know what? I'm still here. I don't feel that that way anymore. So I've came, I've came a long way. Mm. I'm ready. Like I'm ready to talk about this because I know it can help other people. And I always say, if I can change one person's life by making them feel loved and making them feel like they're not alone, then me speaking up about it, how hard it was for me to be open about it, then it was worthwhile. Mm, so powerful. So if I'm honest, the first time I ever spoke about this on stage, I don't actually know because I just, once the, <laughs> once the book was published, I then started talking about it. You know, I had a, mm well-known tv presenter in the uk uh, at my book launch we had a couple of videographers there who were filming it we streamed it streamed it live on facebook when we did a q a and i did a reading and we talked about it there in front of the 80 or 90 people that were at the book launch hmm. and I, ta i talked about my mental health i talked about my depression and because i had dealt with it myself it was just it was like it was like talking about my depression hmm about my binge eating it was just talking about me not wanting to live anymore and standing on tops of bridges and then i started doing podcasts to promote the book and i started to talk about it then 
Um, so it would have been sometime in 2000 and start of 2018 when I was on stage talking about it, but I was already very comfortable in the fact that I was sharing this part of my story hmm. that, to be honest, it didn't actually make an impact on me at all. So um, I, I'm, I'm going to be selfish here. So what would you <laughs> what would you tell somebody who is creating content, who is like putting putting stuff out there in the world and who wants to be more open about themselves, who wants to share more stuff and stories about themselves, but who doesn't feel quite comfortable about it. So uh, <laughs> please speak to that, Luke. Yeah, start sharing the content and the stories that you want to share with the world with people in your inner circle. Mm. And and if they if they already know it, maybe your 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 second inner circle, the people who you're close with but are not your inner inner circle. Mm. And just use baby step it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Think of it as like a bit of a focus group and say, look, mm. I want to be really honest and I want to really be open. I want to be authentic. And hey. I want to talk to you guys about some videos that I want to create. Maybe you create a video and say, look, what do you think about this? You know, do you like it or what are your thoughts? Maybe mm. some photos with some text, you know, whatever the content you're trying to create, but the message you're getting across, the authentic you message, whoever this you is, um, yeah, start with people who you know don't judge you because mm. when you put it out there, Everybody is. <laughs> you're, you're being vulnerable because yeah. you're laughing out there, but you will get judged. You know, I've, yeah. I I get judged not all the time, but I do get judged on social media by certain things that I post and content that I create and stuff that I've done. But I'm now strong enough and and I'm happy in my own skin that that judgment. This is how I deal with judgment. This is how I deal with criticism. This is how I deal with negativity online, mm -hmm. in person, or whatever it is. I don't disregard it immediately. Mm. I go, okay, that judgment, that criticism, that negativity, where is it coming from? All right? Mm. So, okay, and what are you actually saying? Where is it coming from and what are you saying? If you're saying that uh, you're judging me on something that actually when I think about it, actually there's one or two small truths in that. There's mm -hmm. one or two points that I can take away from that criticism, from that negativity, from that judgment, mm -hmm. I'm going to take those one or two things away that I think I can work on, that I think is going to help me be better. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to close down the door and shut the window. Boom, done. Forget about it. Mm -hmm. Because I can't control what those people are saying, what those people are thinking or what those people are doing. I don't focus on things that I can't control. I focus on the things that I can control. That's my thoughts and my actions. So initially my thoughts are, What can you all teach me about your negativity, your criticism, and your judgment? Can you teach me anything? You can. I'll take that. Thanks very much. Now, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And that's my choice to not listen to you. I'm not giving mm. you that control. So that's how I deal with negativity, criticism, and, and judgment. Going back to your point is open up to people. Yeah who you do trust and they trust you and you know that you can be vulnerable with and who won't judge you and mm. they will tell you and the more you do it, okay? So my whole take Great advice, yes. Yeah, the more you do things, the more confident you get. Only if the internal dialogue in your mind is positive. So to increase your confidence, it's about consistent actions. So you mm. want to increase your confidence about posting things online to the, to the big bad world 
that increases confidence <laughs> by posting it, posting it, sharing it with your internal circle, your your friends, your your partner, your spouse, your kids, your 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 sibling, whoever. Okay, mm. that aren't going to judge you, and just share it with them. And you do that on a regular basis while being confident, while being positive in your own mind, then that's how you can increase your confidence. And I really, really love your advice because I was thinking about that um, over, like I'm doing this for like eight months or something like that. And after like 100 or 120 episodes, I was like, man, I'm never talking about like those things that I'm not like, that I'm very, very uncomfortable sharing. But um, I, I shared a few stories with, with my listeners. And um, after I, I, I told like some of my guests a couple of stories, I I totally am way, way, way more comfortable than at the start of doing this. So <laughs> your advice is great. So, uh, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad I can help. <laughs> so um, having said that, um, so now you're in the place where you are feeling great all the time or uh, are you having like some, some lows here and there? And Yeah, 100%. What I've learned, is my, my triggers mm. what what spiral what begins to spiral me into sort of depressive yeah. episodes it's being too busy and not not busy and not busy enough okay mm. so when i had too much time on my hands and when i'm trying to do too much now whether that's training whether that's um creating content whether that's um, doing talks um, or, or, or workshops or, or courses online. If my schedule is too manic, then I get caught up in that and I go, 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 go. And I'm lucky now that I have a teammate in my wife and who I live, <laughs> I live with her and she sees it and, and I'm open with her and she says, do you think you're doing too much? You know, because, mm. so I, I don't want you to crash. And just her saying that, if I can't see it, I acknowledge it and go, whoa, yeah, I am. I need to take a little bit of time off. What I mean by a little bit of time off for me could be, okay, it's it's went, not literally today, but it's, it's Wednesday. I don't have anything this afternoon. And instead of just trying to create more content, do stuff online, do those emails, hmm. I'm going to turn all my electronics off and I'm going to go for a two-hour walk. I'm going to sit in a coffee shop. I'm going to leave my phone at home. I'm going to have a cup of tea and I'm just going to have three or four hours to chill. Because a lot of times I work seven days a week because I don't actually feel like I work, you know, <laughs> like helping people be the best version of themselves. Like it's awesome. It's just what I do for a living. It's it's how I live my life. So if I've got clients, if I've got preparation, if I've got talks I've got to do on a Sunday, it doesn't make any difference to me because you know what? I know on Tuesday I have no FaceTime. I have nothing booked in. My schedule is pretty clear. And I say, cool, I'm going to have a six-hour block where I have no electronics where I hang out, I read books, I go for walks, I just doodle, I write journals, I maybe go see a friend who I know that doesn't work on a Tuesday and say, do you want to go for a one-hour run? Do you want to grab coffee? Do you want to go and play tennis? Whatever. <laughs> um, my, my Sunday, my day of rest is a Tuesday. So I acknowledge that I um, can do too much, but at the same time, when I'm having times of rest, i.e. Mm. after a big challenge, so I did a – my last big challenge I did was a 100-kilometer running race where I ran 100 kilometers nonstop. It took me 13 hours. I trained really hard for it. So 
I had to have a few weeks recovery, right? Because my body yeah. is tired. Now, I'm not going to go and do 12 hours of work on the computer and things like that because that also makes my body tired, even though I'm sitting on the couch or sitting at my desk. So after a few weeks of totally re like recovering and trying to have a, you know, only maybe doing three or four hours of work a, a day and trying to calm down and have a couple of days a week where I don't do anything, I start to get a little bit like I want to start doing stuff. And if I don't start to do a little bit more, my mm -hmm. mood drops. I start to get a little bit more low and I start to drag my feet as I walk figuratively and literally, so to speak. And my mood is pretty you know pretty negative so mm. from doing not enough and doing too much i know that that can trigger me yeah and i think it's really about um thinking for yourself and you must know um what what triggers you because i was just thinking about that quite a few people that are probably exercising way too much but there are also quite a few people listening to this right now that should be exercising so um yeah it's i think it's really about like finding what works for you personally exactly finding what works for you and you know i put my hand up literally that you know do i get it right all the time no mm. have i have i had some depressive bouts over the last couple of years when life is great and i have a loving wife and all the rest of it have so much support around me uh yeah i have you know mm. i definitely have but i know how i can minimize this um these detrimental uh, bouts and and the effects of them is i when i can i clear my schedule you know when i can obviously life isn't always what do you mean by that like um so no, I, no appointments no speaking yeah. engagements okay I don't try and fight it when I mm. when I'm pretty low and I feel like this is happening. Say it's on a Tuesday, at, 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 you know, I wake up and it's like I'm not in a good headspace. And <laughs> let's say I only have one or two things. I would do those one or two commitments, but then I will sit with it. I will mm. sit on I will sit on the couch. I will read a book. I will binge on Netflix for you know for four or five hours and mm. say, okay, like to talking to a third person, my depression, I'm, I'm going to give you this for today. I'm going to give you this for the next four hours, mm. but that's it. I'm going to acknowledge that you're here and I appreciate that you're here and you're not being too detrimental and I'm not going to fight you. Okay. I'm mm. not going to fight you anymore. I'm not going to try and push you out of me by going for a run. I'm not going to try and hurt you. I'm just going to sit with you. Whether that's watching TV, reading a book, or just sitting there or going for a walk or whatever, I'm just going to sit with you and just say, it's okay. It's okay mm. that you're here, but tomorrow I need you to go. But I'm going to give you today. I'm not going to fight you. So I'll give the, my depression, so to speak, two, three, four, five, a day, half a day. And then that way, do you know what happens the next day is I feel good. Mm. I've not tried to fight it. I'm not. Yeah, I can't always do that, but I keep sort of hanging on until I can find a bit of time where I just sit and where I deal with it, where I think about things, where I go over some of the tools of, you know, I meditate more. I go for walks. I do moving meditation where it's just mm. nice, gentle walking, deep breathing, exercising. Okay. So I do other breathing exercises as well as the breathing that I do for meditation um, I do more of that in these times where I feel low. So it's not just a case of like, I've got all the answers. I'm great now. <laughs> I know my triggers. I'm feeling like Superman. <laughs> 
every day. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm human. It still happens. Yeah. But I now know that I know my triggers. I know some of my triggers. And I have tools to help me when I'm in the middle of those really dark times. And I just know that as long as I be honest and as long as I be open and vulnerable to those around me and to myself and I practice self-love, loving myself and not beating myself up and, and you know, being positive in my mind even if I want to be negative, mm-hmm. then I know it will pass. And instead of lasting years or months or weeks or days like it used to, it normally now only lasts hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I think um, what you said is, uh, I think it's really, really important to know for yourself, like you have those tools available and you're knowing exactly what you need to do. And um, I think it also takes a bit of time, like like getting comfortable with having those, those bouts of depression. And um, yeah, because I think a lot of people want this instant quick fix to fill all good all the time and uh yeah, yeah i think every, it's a big trap <laughs> if you if you want to grow as an individual you've mm. got to consciously put yourself in uncomfortable situations mm. all right so if you can sit in discomfort and you choose to put yourself in that discomfort and you can learn from it so you can grow mm. then when you're in uncomfortable situations that you don't choose to put yourself in guess what you're more comfortable because you've practiced putting yourself in difficult and uncomfortable situations. So whether that's from a physical standpoint, when you're training to do a marathon or a 100-kilometer race or a 150-kilometer race like I do, and you practice going for those four, five, six-hour runs, they hurt. They don't Mm. feel good. They're uncomfortable. (laughs) But the more you do it, guess what? When I'm in that race and when I'm running and I know that five or six hours is coming, and it's uncomfortable, it's fine. I've done it before. I'm used to it, all right? Mm. Now, when you get those depressive um, bouts that I talk about and they are uncomfortable, it's not the fact that, oh, I've ran for six hours, so I'm good. No. (laughs) It's a a case of, okay, this is uncomfortable. This is difficult. What do I do? What's the process that I need to take to help me get to the other side? So mm-hmm. you're not giving up. You're not putting your hands up and going, fine, this is it. I can't. It's too hard. <laughs> you constantly challenge yourself. You constantly put yourself in these uncomfortable situations so you can find a way out of them. And the mm-hmm. more you do that, then you have more tools, you have more comfort, and also anxiety levels and things like that will drop because you have a framework of how you can overcome that setback or that obstacle. So, uh, Luke, because you are helping so, so many people grow and coaching, you are coaching them. So what are the, the typical questions that you are asked on like a weekly or daily basis? How can I do this quicker? <laughs> <laughs> Give me the magic pill, yeah. Yeah, and I always say, you can't. <laughs> Simple as that, coaching call finished. No. <laughs> Yeah, people want to people want a quick fix people want to do mm. things quicker people want to grow quicker um yeah and it's i i was emailing back and forth with someone today about you know how can i turn my hobby into my my career my job how can i pay mm. my rent my mortgage with with my hobby and it's like it's going to take time 
you know, people don't want to hear that, but it's real. <laughs> so I talk about being patient and aggressive, right? Mm. So be patient long-term, but be aggressive daily. All right. So this is a, this is a concept that I picked that's up. A, that's a good framework. Yeah. That's a good framework. Yeah. So you've got to be able to be patient long-term, but at the same time, like that's your outcome. But mm. from here to here is a process. You've got to be aggressive every single day. Okay. And I, mm. this concept I, I, I stole, which I'm sure he won't care from a guy by the name of Gary Vaynerchuk, mm. uh, Gary V, if you haven't heard of him, very uh, popular guy. Yeah, check out. He's he's quite polarizing, but if you if you dig down, there's a lot of like golden nuggets that he shares. And like, I won't lie, I didn't make it up. Like I, it's a similar concept to what he talks about. That yeah. when you break it down, you drip, strip it right back. It's about doing the work you need to do to be successful every single day, being consistent, mm. turning up to be the best you can be every day. And as I said earlier, if you can put those days on top of one another of being the best that you can be, learning, growing, developing, mm. and that be patient that you're going to get to the end and focus on the process, not the outcome, then that's going to give you the best chance of success. And if you truly love what you're doing, and even more than that, if you know why you're doing what it is that you're doing, mm. your business or your personal life or whatever it is, then that's going to help you enjoy the process that you need to be focused on. So you can enjoy the process while at the same time being aggressive on a day-to-day basis of building those blocks every single day, being patient to get to the end goal where you think the end goal is, is not even going to be in your mind. It's just like, yeah, I have to be patient because I'm not worrying about that. I'm worrying about being really aggressive every single moment of every day to achieve what I need to do that day. And I told with that i see so so many people who want to start a business or who want to get in shape and they are like getting they're like um working a, a lot of like like 80 hours and and doing like a crazy amount of work or getting to the gym like uh, two times a day and um, they do this like for two or three months and then uh, see ya <laughs> yeah. yeah so that comes down to knowing why Knowing why. So I talk about a wire tree. Okay, Mm. so a tree. So you've got a tree that sits in the forest and it's got um, the trunk and it's got its branches and it's got its leaves, right? Yeah. So knowing why you want to go to the gym, using your example, okay? Mm. So you ask people, why why do you want to go to the gym? And I'm not going to give specific examples for gym goers because we all can guess, but there's there's three levels of whys. There's... The, the leaf wires, so the leaf of the tree, the superficial wires, the branching wires, which are the branches of the, of the tree, and also the roots, which are the deep-rooted wires. Now, the superficial wires, they're like the leaves, okay? They're, they're pretty. They, they're the last thing on the tree. They make the tree look good. They make the tree whole, mm. but they're superficial. When uh, the wind comes, the leaves blow and they disappear. So when it gets really hard, or in winter time, when it gets really dark and it gets really cold and you don't want to leave the house to go to the gym, okay? If you're just focusing on superficial wires, on the leaf <laughs> wires, then it's not going to get you out the door, okay? Mm. Now, also, these superficial wires, in time, they can come and they can go, just like the seasons come and go <laughs> and the leaves fall off. 
So if you're only focusing on the lead why, the superficial why, it's not mm. going to give you the energy you need to continue on your goal. Now, the branching why is the ones that connect the leaf, the leaves to the roots. These are structural. These are important. You have to know them. Most people, when I ask them, why do you do this or why do you want to start a business or why do you want to develop a new product or why do you want to hire this person or why do you want to create this, this team, the, the whys they give me are branching whys. So, for instance, I was talking, as I said earlier, I was talking to um, property investors, um, doing a course with them. Why do you want to be a property investor? I want more time. (laughs) Great. I don't want to have to work for anyone. Great. For me, that's a branching why. Why? Because I say to them, okay, that's cool. You don't want to have to have a a, a boss. You want more time to do things that you want to do. Okay. The deep-rooted whys is what do you want to spend that time on? Mm. how do you want to spend your time so the deep-rooted whys for these people are whatever is specific to them the deep-rooted whys for the gym goers might be something that they don't actually haven't thought about it might be to be healthy okay why do you want to be healthy well actually i have heart disease in my family okay you want to be healthy so you don't get heart disease because it's in your family i tell you what if you write on your fridge go to the gym because my dad and my grandfather and my great-grandfather all died of heart disease, is that a pretty good fuel source to get you to the gym to actually work out and stay healthy? I'm going to say it is. If your why, your superficial why on the fridge that you put up, it's just because you want big biceps, Mm. tell you what, knowing that your dad and your grandfather and your great-grandfather died of heart disease because it's hereditary, it's in the family, that's going to get your ass out the door and Mm. get to the gym rather than just wanting big biceps. So understanding your deep-rooted why, because that's your true energy source that's going to help you push forward to achieve your goals, that's what you need to spend time working on. Not just the branching whys, not just the superficial whys, but the deep mm. And they take time to understand. They take time to grow. And you can have more than one. But you need to know what these deep-rooted whys are. And I think it's really, really important also to be with yourself because there's so so many people that that say they have those big audacious goals and they want to build a nine-figure company and they want to do this and that but um they're like doing nothing and they're never on their business or they're never going to the gym they say oh man i want to compete i want to be like men's physique athlete or want to do this uh, triathlon or uh, iron man or what have you but they are never going to the gym or never training never running or what and i think um i think if you just want to make a living and you just want to be healthy and go to the gym like two or three times a week there's nothing wrong with that But um, I think it's really important to be honest with yourself and don't copy the desires of other people and what somebody says you should do or what should be your goal or, um, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Like if your life is complete and really happy, you don't have to have those big goals. If you love working your nine to five, if you love renting your house, if you have your two kids and and the white picket fence and you've got a dog and, and that's your perfect life, then you shouldn't change anything probably. <laughs> 100%, 100%. Because you get yeah. one life and it's our yeah. life and you have to live it and what's happy. If what you think is going to make you happy is those big biceps, is, is that nine-figure mm. company or whatever, then and if you can't articulate the real reasons why behind that, yeah. then I'll tell you what, it's not going to happen. 
I mm-hmm. I know working with people and 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 doing talks and getting feedback when someone says, "Oh, I want to do this," and I say, "Well, why do you want to do it?" And I I will ask them. I'll encourage them. I'll dig yeah. down. And they are like, uh. <laughs> and I tell you what, I, I can tell if they're going to be successful or not. Like it's it's pretty easy to tell. Um, mm-hmm. At that time, the amount of work that they've done, I can I can tell if they if they're gonna if they're gonna be successful in the next couple of years or not. Just knowing. Yeah if they've actually thought about why it is they want to do what and they want to do. it's so important because I think so so many people especially in my age like early 20s mid 20s they're like always looking like checking on social media what somebody else is doing and they're hearing those gurus speak and um Yeah, I think it's really important to think for yourself. And um, like you've mentioned, um, if your perfect lifestyle is having the house, uh, the two kids in the dog, like it's it's perfectly fine. There's no problem with it. And yeah, um, yeah. so um, Luke, at the end, I always ask every guest of mine five questions. But um, before I ask those, What would you tell our listeners at this point in our conversation? Like, what would be your best advice on life, growth, depression, and all those different things that we've talked about? My my best advice is probably that we we have one life. It's it's not simple. It's messy. It's hard. It's difficult difficult but we have one life and it's our life so how you spend your time your effort your money and your energy you don't have to justify it to anyone okay Mm. so you need to understand that you have to live your life and i talk about living your life like you're driving your car on a motorway on a freeway okay focus on your lane you choose which lane you want to get into you choose the car that you want to drive and be content and have gratitude that you have a car that you're not on a bike all right so have gratitude that you're in a car you're driving and you choose a lane you want to be in and focus on that lane now don't get caught up on what other people are doing in front of you or behind you or even worse what other people are doing beside you so don't look at what they're doing when you should be focusing on what you want to do in your own lane so you want to work harder, put your foot down on the accelerator. You want to overtake someone, change lanes to overtake them, but focus on what you're doing. You don't have to justify anything that you do to anyone. It's your life, so live it how you want. And a really simple way to think about this is driving on that motorway. Stay in your lane. Live your life how you want in your lane. You do you and let others be them. Don't focus on what they're doing. You just focus on being the best that you can do and enjoying your life how you can every single day. So powerful. And um, could you please tell everybody where can they work with you, connect with you, buy your book, find you on the social webs and uh, yeah. Yeah, so I have a website, luketyberski.com and you can find all my information there. It's L-U-K-E-T-Y-B-U-R-S-K-I.com. And you can drop me an email there on social media. I'm at Luke Tybersky, and you can find my book, which I just have a copy here, Chasing mm-hmm. Extreme. Uh, you can find my book on Amazon, and it's on Audible and paperback. Uh, sorry, it's on uh, Kindle and paperback, and, and Audible will come out in December. So the audio version will be out in December. Uh, my documentary called The Ultimate Triathlon is on Amazon Prime, as well as a second documentary called The 500 Man. 
And as I said, if you just want to reach out and say hi, you want to reach out and say, look, I'm struggling with something, can I help? Or if you want to have a workshop at your company, if you want to do some one-to-one work, whether you're a runner, an entrepreneur, a budding entrepreneur, or a manager or a, or a director, you can get in touch at uh, luke at luketaberski.com. <laughs> Got it. So, uh, Luke. The first out of the five question is, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? <laughs> Can I say mine times three? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, um, the, le- the Leading Brain, okay, it's called The Leading Brain, um, and it's all about um, science of how you can uh, perform better. That's mm-hmm. probably one leading brain. Tools of Titans by mm. Tim, Tim Ferriss. It's it's really simple to come in and out of, um, and that's why he wrote it. I've got a bunch of friends who are featured in the book, which is always cool to read about what your friends are saying and then talk rubbish about them. Uh, <laughs> but there's great nuggets. There's a really good yeah. nuggets to pull out of it. Um, and a third book would be um what third book would it be uh maybe rich rolls rich rolls Mm. um book uh finding ultra i think i was very lucky to be a guest on the rich roll podcast um very very popular podcast yeah so i've been i was on that a few years ago and just i was lucky to sit and chat with rich it was really cool um and hear his story and chat with him as a person but also read his story as well uh, from the from the book fighting ultra so yeah i'd say those three books got it so uh, second question is um what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most three movies that i've enjoyed the most okay i won't lie bad boys Bad Boys 2, <laughs> um, uh, that I've enjoyed the most. So I'm going to say the two, the two Bad Boys movies and um, The Blind Side. I thought that was a really cool uh, movie with Sandra Bullock, um, mm. Blind Side. Yeah, about American football player in college. There's a lot of really powerful... It's a blind... Yeah, I haven't watched that. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely cool. Um, yeah. Really, really um, heartwarming, but also real life at the same time. It's based on a true story. So always like cool. films like that. And they, I like the films at the end where they show you the real person that the film's about. And um, that's what they did. But, yeah, Bad Boys 1 and 2 and The Blind Side. <laughs> so the third question is, um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Most useful product or service? Most uh, most useful product or service? That's a really tricky question. Um, I'm trying to think what have I bought recently. I don't buy a lot of things these days. Um, product or service? Product or service? Oh, I tell you what, I bought the other day that was really cool because mm-hmm. I can't think of it. It's a new electric toothbrush. It was amazing. Mm. My teeth feel really clean. I know it's a bit of a lame answer. Uh, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> People yeah. mentioned Uber, Uber E. Oh, it doesn't actually, matter. Actually, now, um, a couple of months ago, I went to a buddy of mine's uh, course, Brian McKenzie, um, who talks about the art art of performance. I think he's mm-hmm. he does a course called The Art of Breath, and he was in London. 
So I went and met up with him and did a, I think a six hour workshop on the art of breath with Brian um, and his business partner um, with a bunch of other people. So yeah, Brian McKenzie, check him out, the art of breath. Um, that was, that was really cool. Just learning more about breathing techniques. Um, well, I didn't learn too much, but it reinforced the stuff that I've been doing for years. So that was cool. Uh, new toothbrush and the art of breath. So there's two. <laughs> so uh, the fourth question is, um, what are the most important relations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal. The um, most important what? Realizations. The most important realizations. Yep. Um, recently or just in my life? In your life, yeah. Okay. And it could be about anything. That no, no one cares about something that you have or you create as much as you do. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a big one. And something yeah. that I remind myself of. Uh, is, am I doing one or am I doing three? How many you want to? I can come with another one. So no one cares about what you do or what you create as much as you. And... I don't know how this works, and we hear it all the time, but if you stop doing things for something in return, you will receive everything you need in abundance. Hmm. I don't know how it works, but when I stopped hmm. trying to make connections and help people because I thought they could help me, when I stopped, hmm. when I stopped doing this about four or five years ago, And just starting helping people all the time and just starting uh, doing other things for people who I know can't help me in return and stop viewing the world and viewing how I spend my time and my energy doing that, then when I actually truly, truly, truly desperately need something, it appears. Hmm. I have no idea how the hell that works, but that's a realization that I've came about. So uh, the last question for the day is, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Oh, what would I tell my 20-year-old self? <laughs> oh, it's, I think it would take the 16 years to tell him everything I want to tell him. Um, <laughs> I, I, would, I would tell my 20-year-old self that it's okay to be completely vulnerable with the truth. Hmm. So, uh, Luke, <laughs> thank you so, so much for being so vulnerable, uh, sharing your story, giving your advice here on the show. And um, this was one of the most enjoyable episodes for me. So it, it was really a great episode. Thank you so much. No worries, Heidi. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> and I wish you well in the future with everything that you do as well. <laughs> Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out. <laughs>